everyone. I'm Mitch Owens, Decorative Arts Editor at Architectural Digest, also known here and on Instagram as the ADS Theat. The shingle style was an architectural style that was born in the late 1870s in the United States, and since then it has been revived and recalibrated here and around the world by successive generations of architects, from the Hamptons to China. Especially popular at seaside resorts, it became known as the architecture of the American summer. Today I'll be discussing the shingle style's invention and evolution with three experts on the subject. Tom Kliegerman, a principal of the AD100 firm Ike Kliegerman Barclay and co-author of the book The New Shingled House, architectural historian Willie Granston, a PhD candidate in the history of art and architecture at Boston University, and joining us on the phone, AD100 architect Robert A.M. Stern, a leading proponent and inspiring reinventor of the shingle style for more than 40 years. One of the things is so you know so many cities, towns, um, villages throughout America. Every place we go has a house covered in shingles, but that's not a shingle-style house. And so I wanted Bob, could you sort of tell us some of the elements of what makes a classic shingle-style house as it would have been at the time it was invented without a name before Vincent Scully gave it a name. The shingle-style Scully. Uh, defined it, emerged um, roughly at the time of the American uh, centennial. Uh, after the Civil War, Americans began to try to tie up the country again into a unity, and there was a rediscovery of uh, 18th century culture, uh, pre-revolutionary era and revolutionary culture, which included the architecture of, New Eng- of the New, uh, New England uh, settlers. So that's the kind of formal and cultural origin of the shingle style, overlaying itself with um, tendencies, a trend in England. Norman Shaw, the uh, great English architect, was looking at vernacular uh, trends in English uh, architecture in a way to overcome the random eclecticism uh, of the early part of the 19th century. It's very complicated and mixed up, but that's a good as, as good an as, uh, interpretation as any. And if you look at the early drawings that were published in The American Architect and Building News, which was first published as a journal in 1876, so it's part of this story, uh, you'll see depictions of people in sitting in uh, 18th century or early 19th century chairs, you'll see women maybe perhaps even spinning, uh, things like that. So the whole culture and, and domestic life of the uh, early uh, pre-revolutionary country becomes uh, the bedroot of this movement. But then the shapes themselves have little to do with the American colonial period, correct? I mean, it's, it's no, they're, no, they're looking at true. the shingles as opposed to the massing. Is that correct? No, no, because there was a shortage of timber in England. And so English uh, vernacular houses such as the first settlers would have known were covered uh, largely in tile or stucco. And when they came to the United States, well, America, which wasn't the United States yet, they found all this timber. 
So they adapted the timber, cutting it into shingles and shakes um, uh, in emulation of the kind of tile-hung architecture they were familiar with from places like Maidstone and Kent and, uh, and others. You're right. The, a, a sort of sh- shingle-style house of 1885 is not a symmetrical sort of Palladian colonial house, but it, ha- it borrows a lot of those forms. There are a lot of sort of simple house-like forms that came mm. from that colonial period that shows up in, in the shingle style. But how did, they, how did they take that, the architects of that time, and sort of modernize it, contemporize it, in terms of the shapes of the houses? I mean, there's a, an enormous amount of sort of horizontality going on Well, they were responding to a modern lifestyle, right. too, right? They need to have these, uh, Scully talks about it being these houses that sort of grow and evolve in response to what people in the 1880s needed, mm-hmm. as opposed to people in the 1780s, per se. Right. But also, right. one of the things I think that gets, gets added in America that you don't see in England is the porch. You know, these single-style houses had these porches which become integrated into the mass of the building, right. both as sort of terraces that stick out, but also as roofed areas they call piazzas. So the house really gets sort of cut up, and it becomes horizontal, partly because of those porches. And that's something that's really, I think, uniquely American, is that type of screened porch or open porch. Well, the climate um, uh, lends itself to, to the uh, u- utility of those porches. Many of these houses, in fact, the majority of them in, in the early phase of the shingles uh, were built in resort communities along the New England coast, sometimes in the mountains in New England, um, the New Hampshire, for example. Uh, so the shade of the porch was important. Also, these houses were built on streets or, ro- or country roads, as opposed to English, large English houses were on big uh, estates. So the porch provided a place for the residents of a house to sit shaded, overlook the street, but not be seen completely uh, exposed to the passers-by on the sidewalk or on the roadways. The, the other thing is, of course, we introduced central heating into the houses. Even in the summer houses, had a form of central heating for the uh, kind of uh, uh, shoulder seasons, as they're now called in the travel industry, like the, uh, Octo- early October when these houses were still being used. And so the central heating enabled the plans to open up so that the houses began to sprawl. But the big sprawling mass first was Richard Norman Shaw's houses like Hope Dean and others mm-hmm. in England, which were illustrated in the pioneering English architectural magazine, The Builder, which uh, architects like uh, Richardson, H.H. H. Richardson, uh, surely subscribed to. And Richardson, as you probably know, started the first American magazine, the New York Sketchbook of Architecture, and he sent, asked McKim, who was courting some woman, who became his wife, uh, in Newport to take photographs of the old city. Um, which he did, and he also photographed the Bishop Berkeley House, and I think it's in Middletown, if I remember correctly. Correct. Yes. And that's the first photograph uh, ever of an American building in an American magazine, in fact, in any magazine of architecture. And the photograph is significant because it's from the back of the house where there are many lean-tos on um, bringing the roof way down low. If you look carefully at that photograph, you'll see that the front of the house is two stories high flat, 
but you can't really see much of it because of the angle, and was probably Georgianized in the 18th century. So the, what they were looking at was not the Georgian classicizing houses, but the lean-tos, the informality mm -hmm. of, of these houses. So that's the characteristic of, of the shingle style. But there's so many strands, as Scully points out, that feed into this uh, wholly eclectic style that it's very forgiving. And, you know, architects like in, in those days, like McKim and others, uh, were able to make many different de designs according to what we now call the shingle style. And architects today, like Tom Kligerman and, and, and myself and others, also enjoy the freedom of this style. And one of the things that I've always loved about the shingle style houses, and Willie, you had mentioned in an earlier conversation with me about Creek Farm mm -hmm. and that gigantic gambrel roof right. just sort of pulling down like a giant billowing sail over it's this like house. It's like a parachute being yeah, pulled down. Yeah, it's like down. a parachute, yeah. exactly. And then these porches sort of that seem to go forever underneath Well, that I think the roof. Creek Farm provides the ultimate example of here you have this, what we today would call a massive shingle style house but it's being built in Portsmouth, a city known for its colonial architecture. And so they, and Arthur Astor Carey, had a great colonial revival house in Cambridge. It still stands. Mm. Uh, and so they were very conscientious of what they were doing as far as responding to that colonial vernacular, but also doing something a, a little bit different. No colonial house was as big as right. Creek Farm. Which house are you discussing? Uh, Creek Farm up in Portsmouth by... Um, uh, Alexander Wadsworth Longfellow. It's done in 1887, and it's been the subject of a great deal of um, press recently because it was almost torn down. That was saved. It was saved in the. Wow. It was saved in the last minute. Wow. And it is going to be restored, but it was nearly, nearly right. Down. I thought it was down. No, I I'm went. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know that house. I'll have to look it up. It's. I think you'll like it. It's pretty, pretty magnificent. It's a long, rambling house. And it grew, and it grew, and yeah. it grew. And it's been painted white with a red roof now or something. Yeah. Which is it's, unfortunate. It's That's unfortunate the one thing, white. It's an, this is why looking at your Instagram and seeing how these houses were meant to blend into mm. the landscape around them. I well, mean, and um, what's interesting, too, about Creek Farm is uh, early photographs show it being in this rolling field. There's no trees there. So, again, it sort of furthers that more colonial as far as... Uh, Origins, right? The, the, the surrounding of these houses with elaborate gardens and and uh, tree plantations, all of that is not typical. The early days of the shingle style. The old photographs show that they were sit, the houses were situated in in on lawns or in meadows, and of course lawns were hard to maintain before the development of uh, power mowing. But but you could keep them kind of rough cut. Uh, the other the other thing is that we, uh, all the houses we've been talking about are big and rambling, but the shingle style was easily adapted and effectively adapted to rather compact massing as the houses, some of the houses on Red Cross Avenue in Newport, which is sort of behind Bellevue Avenue. Right. Mm -hmm. And also some of these architects uh, trained in the East, sometimes went to MIT, even uh, one or two probably went to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. I can't be specific at this moment, but they went out to California. Why did they go to California? Because there was a huge economic depression around 1893. California, Northern California, San Francisco especially, was prospering because of trade with Asia and also because of the gold rush, which was still very much part of the uh, culture out there. And on top of that, I'd add the lumber industry. Style houses in San Francisco, which are urban houses near near the Presidio yeah. in particular, and Bernard uh, Maybach and people like that. Right. Polk. Maybach, 
Ernest Coxhead was Coxhead. an Englishman. Mm-hmm. Came first to Los Angeles. He designed this the most incredible um, shingled church in Los Angeles, of which there are only a few photos, but it, it was either burned down or torn down. I can't remember, but there are photos of it. And then Coxhead built in San Francisco and north and I think Petaluma or one of those small towns up, uh, north of the bay. So Coxhead is under uh, uh, a little discussed and appreciated. Richard Longstreth did the best job with him in his book on uh, At the Edge of the World about San Francisco uh, late 19th, early 20th century architecture. Russian Hill has Julia Morgan shingled houses. She was a master of the modest shingle style, but sometimes um, got bigger houses like one in Saratoga, California, uh, which I admire. I don't know if you know it, but it's worth looking up. I know, Willie, one of the things you had mentioned was that within the discussion of the shingle style, we also have to think of churches and corporate buildings and courthouses and public buildings public and buildings the Newport Casino I mean look at that oh that's the best it's a fantastic shingle style right and, and, and it's really block. that's the building that put McKinney Noid on the map when it's they did such that a great when they, building. in 1879 mm-hmm. yeah it's tell great. us about that visually because obviously we're 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 on a podcast <laughs> and people are trying to imagine what I, I think say, the, say the casino looks like I think of it as this sort of incredibly seductive maze of, of, of shingled forms and... Well, it is It is once you get through the building into the courtyard in the right, back, which right. has its the lawn tennis courts, and it's very free form, has a tower, has, you know, a, asymmetrical massing in brick Those and these beautiful... Piazzas. The piazzas that wrap around, but the front of the building on Bellevue Avenue is actually very symmetrical. It is completely symmetrical mm-hmm. and very classical. It's got traditional moldings. There's and a lot of sort flat, of- Quite flat, too, quite planar. Very flat, and it has lots of intricate little carvings and flowers and floriated details, mm-hmm. but it's a very sort of formal presentation and completely different from what happens at the back of the right. building. Right, right, absolutely. But you know, well, you that have- that building- Business that at the building, front, party at the back. It's interesting <laughs> to contrast it with its immediate neighbor, which was 10 years older, and was designed by Richard Morris Hunt, the first American to go to the Bazaar. But the design of the building called the Travers Block is very English um, and rather maybe overwrought in some ways. And the, the shingle style casino, um, and by the way, our listeners should know that the casino was really referring to, it was a gambling club where you'd go there to play cards and you could play tennis. It's now the Tennis Hall of Fame. So some people listening in may actually have visited it, not knowing its importance in the history of American architecture. Also, the courtyard in the center is very Roman. It's like a, a hippodrome. And the, the lanterns that uh, flank the main entrance on the courtyard side are very French, uh, Louis X or something like that period, uh, which McKim would have known for his time in Paris. So it's got stuff from everywhere. Those sh- giant uh, lanterns inside also are similar to the ones that McKim put on the Boston Public Library. Right. Completely yes. different kind of building, yes. mm-hmm. but equally sort of extravagant and baroque and pointed and incredible. But somehow so complementary to a shingle oh, absolutely. architecture. Well, that which playfulness. The whole idea is that you sort of grab from everything the for them. That's I think, right. that you... But I think I want to go back to what Bob said. I mean, he talks about the Travers Block right next door, which, as you said, is you know 10 years old 
older, and you look at the casino, and within that 10 years, something's changed. There's, a, there's something new in the, in the air, and there is so it's a remarkable change that happens, and it's so cool to go to Newport and see that right there. And, well, the and, then, too. and then to the right of the casino, right. was that, I think it's a George Post building, which is all brick isn't it, and Isn't t- it Bruce Price? Maybe it's Bruce Price, but it's all terracotta, right. and you the see the auto this, museum. Yeah, now an auto museum. When, when the shingle style, let's just say, was, was born, was it instantly embraced by all reviewers, critics? I don't know that it was instantly embraced. I mean, what I've been doing recently, which has been very interesting, going through all the period press starting in 1875 and going every year through building an American architect and architect and sanitary engineer and probably eight or nine different publications. And it there's a, clearly some people who are right into it and some people who really have a hard time going for it. What are, what they, are, what are their criticisms of it? They're not writing as much. Um, what you're reading more about in the criticisms is more of a... We as Americans need to think about what we are and our place in the world. And uh, Robert Swain Peabody is writing about this pretty extensively. He's saying, you know, the English have finally found their own history. Can't we do ours? Mm -hmm. And some architects are just ready to go for it. And some really are pretty tepid. Right. And you find really wild results. Well, in 1876, Richardson begins to have to take his place uh, as the leading uh, a stylistic influence in America. And of course, he's the first American architect to be given a commission in Europe, a, a house for a painter named Hubert Herkimer, as I recall his name. But by 1886, he dies. Right. And it's just at that point that a lot of the typical profession, as usually the case, is, is, is way behind the times. But uh, some are beginning to look for new, new stylistic leadership and the single style itself with the arguments of uh, Robert Peabody, Swain Peabody, and, and McKinley White and others in the press, their buildings and their articles, uh, uh, gives a new, a new direction. But Richardson's own ha- uh, architecture, like the Stoughton House on Brattle Street in Cambridge, like the, um, there's a little house on, uh, now I can't think of it, on a campus that they want to tear down. Oh, it's the Percy Brown House. Yeah. Yes, it's a wonderful house with the most ingenious plan of two rooms that uh, kind of connect and don't connect. Uh, to tear that down, I hope there, uh, I hope there's somebody will send this discussion to the people at that school. What school is it again? It's Tabor, Tabor Academy. Uh, Tabor Academy, yes. The, I mean, the outrageous uh, effort to block uh, preserving that house. It could be moved to another site. It's it's um, one of the most. Uh, wonderful small houses ever designed in America. And what's interesting about that house, too, is Richardson's also the first architect to get his own monograph. Just upon his death, Marianna Griswold and Rensselaer writes the monograph about Richardson, and she talks about that house in particular and says, you know, this may be his true gem Mm. as far as houses. It was low cost, but so effective and so perfect. And the other thing I want to mention, too, is Today, architects, you know, Tom I hope is. You that. I hope you will send a little email or note to some person at Tabor Academy, reminding with a quote uh, or xeroxing that passage from uh, Mrs. Van Rensselaer's book and explaining to him. Absolutely, she was uh, herself a very important figure. Absolutely, I will if you will. No, no, you do it. <laughs> but the other thing I would mention, too, is the importance of the press at that point. I mean, today, architects, Tom is great at this, you know, the social media game and all these great buildings that influence you. 
the press was so important, the fact that you were having weekly periodicals coming out with new drawings, mm -hmm. with new ideas, and it wasn't one or two, it was, there were dozens of them, short-lived, long-lived, and it really made a big difference. That's changed today. Absolutely. I mean, it must have had an enormous impact on public taste. I mean, the trickle-down seems, at least concerning the shingle style, seems to have been so rapid. I well, mean, it seems to have been so quickly embraced, not not only for people who were going to resorts, but people who were living in, in small towns and for whom a shingled house was a gateway to modernity, in a way, but still existing on a traditional foundation. Well, and if you can take your drawing of a McKim Meadon White House in Newport to your local architect and say, I want this... Mm. He can do it. And, and go to Newport, you can find the Samuel Coleman house has an almost twin down across from the Breakers by um, Dudley Newton, the house on the corner there. It's very similar, even in floor mm. plan. So you find this copying, and I don't believe it's necessarily hateful, but they're just so impressed by these new houses. Right. But I, I, something you said earlier, Tom, about, about the shingle style and its sense of invention, as well as Willie saying its sense of whimsy, it, which instantly brings to mind, only because where I live in Cooperstown, there's a, a, an echo of it, is the, is the low house, McKinmeaden White's low house, which photographed from the, the garden side, the, the, the reverse side, is basically a gigantic pediment coming out of the ground. It's a pediment from both sides. Right, yeah. yeah. And what's amazing about the low house, too, is there you have the house brought down to its purest form, a roof that goes on forever, and little walls, right? If you tell a kid to draw a house, what is he or she going to draw? Well, it's funny you say that, because one of the things that people ask me, why is the shingle style so, so popular? One of the reasons is if you ask a kid to draw a house, what a kid will draw is everything that you find in a shingle mm -hmm. style house, and in kind of a crude, asymmetrical, wobbly way, and that's what's mm -hmm. great about the shingle styles. You can do those things and kind of get away with it. It's so forgiving, as Bob mentioned. You know, you can sort of, if there's a problem and you can't figure out what to do, you sort of cover it with shingles and it looks good. <laughs> well, and, and we love the uh, asymmetry. I don't think you want to be quoted on <laughs> <laughs> Well, what I always loved about shingle style houses from, from childhood was no matter how big they were, no matter how small they were, there is a fairy tale quality to them that seems to be a universal you know, uh, door into loving them. But there's also fairy tale, but also that really homey feeling. When you walk into a good shingle style house, it's so good. You just know it's right. Yeah, and it's, I mean, other architecture before that was so formal. Think about those Greek revival houses and the Gothic revival houses. They're fun to go right. into, but it's not some place you can really fully relax. Well, they're typically they have nooks and crannies. The ceiling is low or relatively low. And yet, and they're and they're dark and cozy, right. but they're also very modern. As you know, the the rooms well, flow. The there's a, there's actually right. a barn Isaac door. Right. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. There's actually a barn door between the hall of that house and mm -hmm. the sort of and this. I guess they call it the salon or the drawing room. Mm -hmm. It slides open, so it's very modern. It's there's an explosion a, there's, of space. Well, yeah. yeah, there is a house in Cooperstown called Westridge that was built uh, in 1884 by Bab, Cook, and Willard, and it, it has a similar form to the the low house. That sort of gigantic pediment coming out of the ground, and what I love about it is the sequencing of the spaces of, of walking through the front door to the entrance hall, but the door to the grand hall is basically a gate. Mm -hmm. It's a paneled gate, mm -hmm. which you have to reach over to unlatch. And it is sort of like a, a barn stable effect. And then you walk into this room where uh, it's paneled in what I can only describe as, it looks like a picnic basket. It's all these woven slats. Mm -hmm. 
Well, McKinley and White did that a lot. They would right. actually do woven. There's a there's a room at the Metropolitan Museum, a mm. staircase where it's, it's and all woven. And the casino theater has that woven interior. Yeah, with a little bit of paint. Very influenced by Japan at the same time. Absolutely. Remember that the U.S. opened trade with Japan in the 1850s, but it really got going later on. And of course, there was. Uh, the, in Salem, Massachusetts, a lot of trade with Japan and China. Um, and, the, and so Japanese is very important. You can see that very, very vividly in the dining room in Newport that Sanford White added on to a house that was originally designed by Richard Upjohn, mm. as I recall. Yeah, right. King's, King's, King's Coat. Coat. Yeah, King's Coat. I think that's one of the I think that's one of the best rooms in America. That, and that dining room is that same room. weird gate where you sort of walk through this gate to go to the dining room, right? Right, the, but it's just a grid, right. sort of Japanese grid of right. wood with with basket weave. Of, of, and you know, this goes inside. back really interesting to something Tom you said about the ability of the shingle style versus a lot of styles mm-hmm. to be able to absorb multiple influences in an incredibly natural way. Well, and what's interesting, too, is the period press is talking about colonial America. You should go visit the houses in Dedham, Mass., or Concord, New Hampshire, or wherever. But there's also big articles about Japan. Mm. And so you have this in the press, this really, it's like a hodgepodge of, of influences and ideas. It's so interesting. Well, I think at the Philadelphia Centennial, they actually built a Japanese tea house. Right. Which a lot of people That's saw right. it. Right. That's right. I mean, one of the things I love at the Bell House is the are, are the dragons and the bamboo poles. The Centennial was really a kind of bourgeois Japanese house. It was in 1893 when they built the so-called Uuden at the Columbian Exposition that it was a much more authentic, traditional Japanese house, as I recall. Right. Um, and that influenced Frank Lloyd Wright. One of the many things that influenced Frank Lloyd Wright that he never owned up to. Um, <laughs> what, a, what a character he was. But uh, the, the interiors, we haven't been focusing so much on the interiors, but uh, Richardson's interiors were great. And Stanford White worked on a lot of Richardson's interiors. You know, White was not trained as an architect. He was really an artist um, and, a, and a rather fantastic decorator. And the stair, uh, for example, in the uh, uh, Robert Treat Payne House in Waltham, mm-hmm. uh, which Richardson designed and, um, and Stanford White truly worked on, is the stairs like a big waterfall that swallows up the space of the entry hall. And over and over again, Frank, uh, Tom mentioned the uh, uh, McKim uh, House, it's the Metcalf House, it's in the, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That's actually the stair hall of the Metropolitan of the Metcalf House came from Buffalo. The other thing is, McKim had a huge office for those days. Richardson's office was kind of atelier-like and casual, although he had very talented people working for him. But by the time McKim who chose to stay in New York when Richardson migrated to Brookline, Massachusetts, McKim and his partners built up a major office, so many of whom uh, workers for his office went out on their own to practice, like you mentioned, Bab Cook and Willard, I think. Right. Two or three of them worked for McKim uh, for a period of time. So, uh, And there are many others. So they carried the ideas out into the hinterland, like... Buffalo and places like that, and and actually there isn't much shingle style work in Chicago. I think they were very sensitive about fire in Chicago, but there are many shingle style work, as I said earlier in this discussion, in in uh, California, especially in San, San Francisco in the Bay Region. One of the reasons the shingle style got revived in a way was in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. 
Lewis Mumford um, coined the contemporary uh, developments uh, uh, in California, the Bay Region style, but it certainly turned the focus of a lot of people onto California as being distinct from the East Coast in terms of its architectural culture. Yeah, and I think the thing that I would add to that, too, is what Bob mentioned briefly, is that whole relationship between these architects. There were so many that came out of Richardson's office. Mm-hmm. You know, you got McKim and White come out of uh, Richardson's office, and then they spawn a whole generation. There's this whole genealogy, and people like Richardson were really pushing these architects to, to, to play around, to do more. I was at Columbia this week going through some of the McKim and White drawings and pulled out drawings that had Richardson's stamp on them. But McKim had put his own name and architect above them and dated them, 1870, just after he arrived. And so the idea that Richardson's pushing and saying, you know, you should be playing with this too. You should right. be trying some new ideas. Is, that, is there something to be said based on that genealogy that the shingle style at the time that it was invented was a, was a, a young architect's? Well, what you find when you look at these architects who are big by 1885, most of them are born between the late 1840s and the start of the Civil War. Mm. There's about a 10-year period, and that's when the majority of them are born. Now, there are outliers. Uh, William Ralph Emerson is 1833. He's kind of an old man, but he's brilliant. And by the time the 80s hit, he's in full swing. But then he peters out quite early. Right. So we're talking 20s, late 30s. I mean, they're they're a really young young. group of... Absolutely. Yeah. Well, McKim came back from uh, went to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, I think, right after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Richardson was caught in Paris during the Civil War, and he was a Southern boy, and he, his funds were cut off due, due to the uh, fact that England supported the South and um, uh, and uh, France did not. So, um, but they, their their lives are very much intertwined with the events of the Civil War. I can't remember when McKim, when White was born, but he wasn't born. 1853. Right, and 1853. Okay. And McKim was born in 1847, and he right. leaves and goes on his own with to form his own office in 1877. So he's 30 years old. Yeah. And then by 1879, look at what he's done in Newport. The casino's up. And that's a pretty big It splash. is always amazing when I look at these incredible houses like the Low House and you realize how young these guys were when they were doing them. Here I am, I'm twice that age and still <laughs> dying to do my first Low House. Tom, time to move on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's really interesting that, that, that Tom and Bob and any number of other architects still find a great deal of freshness, inspiration, and possibilities in what many people would consider to be an old-fashioned Well, I, you know, I think this, that my favorite decade for the shingle style is the 1880s, because that's when it seems to me it was it, it, at its most modern. When you look at John Calvin Stevens' work then, mm-hmm. much simpler, more abstract than his work by, 18, by 1912, when right. it becomes much more classical and has moldings put all over in columns. I love that period, and it is very modern. And, and Emerson's house, I forget the name of that gi- giant house on Mount Desert with that incredible... Oh, Mossley Hall, the Howard House. Yeah, with Incredible, the- that porch with the sort of circles and mm-hmm. squares and cutouts. It, it was is. really modern. And then it kind of, it becomes a little bit more integrated into other styles. It becomes, you sort of begin to see, if I'm not mistaken on the date, sort of Georgian houses wrapped in shingles and stuff right. like that. But well, that yeah. 1880s yeah. was very modern still, and those floor plans, like Bell, mm-hmm. so open and, and modern. Well, and that asymmetry and that minimal detail, it's very much what you do today. And like you're saying, by the 1890s and 1900, taste had changed. Things are over, and that 1880s decade is really... And so, then, so when you say why that? is it to me why is it still mm-hmm. inspired because it, it is so modern I love see, finding the modern stuff in that even though it's 140 years ago now right 
Well, every now and again, you see a drawing of a house you've never seen. The one that you emailed of the house oh, near, Camp Lejeune, Hall and, near Camp Lejeune. Yes. Oh, my word. It's wild. Is Bob, it, it's a completely wild house. No, I will send that to Bob. Bob, when I was, a, when I was a, a, in high school, there was a house that I had learned about that was long demolished that was the centerpiece of a 2,600-acre estate where Camp Lejeune is now. And it was called Onslow Hall. And it's this lunatic shingle style sculptural but it's sort of house. Bag. It's the most sort of amazing thing. Hints of Frank Lloyd Wright in it and stuff. It's oh, really it's an absolutely. amazing house. Well, and I've, in the magazines I've been going through recently, these drawings that were never realized, imagined drawings by Ralph Adams Cram in the in the early yeah. 1880s, he's p- pouring out shingle style designs that are just so inventive and so fun. And of course, now we think about him doing churches later in his life when he becomes more formal. Well, Cram right. is very interesting in this a discussion. I'm glad you're bringing him up because he also r- r- traveled to Japan and wrote a very interesting book about J- Japanese uh, architecture. So Cram has been pigeonholed into the Gothic revival, which, of course, in his maturity, that's where he concentrated his uh, energies. But he also designed in other styles. Sweetbriar College in Virginia, a woman's college, is uh, is a Georgian campus in the Jeffersonian manner because Cram, I think, or maybe Maybe the trustees, but or both, didn't think a Gothic campus was appropriate. But he had lots of buildings in the American Georgian style. Uh, he has never been properly uh, uh, written about. Um, I agree. Uh, uh, there's a Boston historian, but he's very eccentric. Well, he just uh, passed away. That would be oh. um, um, Shantucci. Yes, my, I didn't know oh, he did died. He, oh. he died. Um, about a year ago now. Yes, but oh. but, but he that did Cram like, book is a great is a great book. I mean, I, I, was, I became interested in Cram because of Oh, it, bring, it, it pulls all the ghosts out of Cram's closet. It yes. certainly does. But I think that you're right, is that Cram has been pigeonholed into this, you know, gothic revival mode, and he was so much more versatile, and he was so interesting. Now, now going back to something about the youth of, of the shingle style was when, Tom, you were saying it sort of was becoming much more formalized by the 1890s, is that the same time that the the great practitioners, the young practitioners of the shingle style of the 1880s had abandoned it and moved on well, to other uh, things? When uh, McKim, Mead and White get the commission for the Boston Public Library in eight, late 86 or early 87, and they've already started to move on by then. You know, there's the Boston well, Public Library. I, I don't think that's quite true. I think that they did different kinds of work for different uh, kinds I would agree. of commissions. You wouldn't do a shingle style library on Copley Square, and you wouldn't do one in the Richardson Romanesque, because right across the square was the Trinity Church. Um, so you would want to set yourself apart, and um, uh, and so they did adapt in a French model, uh, of, of, for, for a French classical model. But they continued to do shingled houses way, way later into the 20th, early 20th century, including the orchards in Southampton, which is a model a little bit on um, Mount Vernon, but it is also a kind of a casual shingled house, or the house he Mick Stanford White worked on with Theodate Pope Riddle in Farmington, Connecticut. So they're they're hybrids, and they're uh, they did different kinds of things. I I, I think that uh, Sam White does a pretty good job documenting. A lot of McKinney White's work, but not enough. I, it's hard to call the Orchards or the Riddles House 
shingle style. I mean, maybe they're influenced because they ramble, but those are both colonial revival houses to me. Well, and and, well, that, that, and painted right. white. Shingles. And painted well, white. they're in shingles, but they, so were the colonial houses, and they're right. painted white, and they were not. A, and, well, and I think that I would agree that certainly McKinney and White still does some shingle style stuff into the 90s, but what I'm saying about the Boston Public Library is by that point, they're looking at new things, and when it's finished in the early 90s, then you've got the Chicago World's Fair going right. on, the White City happens, McKim is really pushing that hard. There's change in the air. And there are certainly architects. John Calvin Stevens goes right through his whole life doing a shingle style. So then we have this period of time, let's say after the 40s, when shingle style goes to sleep again and then the comes 1940s. alive again, 1940s, okay, yeah. and then comes alive again in the 60s, thanks to people like Bob Stern. Um, uh, what? Well, thanks to the publication of the shingle style book, by, um, which was a PhD essay originally of Vincent Scully's, and Vincent Scully was directed to look at this material by Henry Russell Hitchcock, who was writing a book on Rhode Island architecture and thought that the Low House was a, f- a fundamental building and could could uh, uh, mark a, a very distinct uh, period in architecture and, di- and directed Scully to, to look at it, and Scully did. And Scully is himself... I acknowledge that in an introduction to a book about Hitchcock. Um, uh, and then Scully would lecture, and he was a powerful lecturer, and he would show his uh, uh, modern architecture course was really more American architecture in those days. It gradually evolved in the 60s to being much more an analysis of modern architecture in its totality. But in the early 60s, he spent a lot of time on Richardson and Wright, but also on the shingle style in his lectures. And um, uh, myself and others were very much influenced by uh, those lectures and that book. I did a little book. I got Scully to come when Tom, I think, was a student at Columbia, I don't remember now exactly, to give a lecture at, at Columbia. And he said, what should I lecture? And I said, well, why don't you lecture on the influence of the shingle style today? Because Passanella, Robertson, Stern, mm-hmm. all these architects uh, who were in their late 30s uh, at the time, uh, and many of them had been Scully students at Yale, um, were designing uh, a, a form of shingle-style architecture. And he gave that lecture and then converted it into a book uh, which he called The Shingle Style Today or The Historian's Revenge. <laughs> and you have to imagine that there was Scully giving that lecture, writing that book, and thinking, wow, this is modern. This can be reinvented. Yes. And, and that's just what Tom said. Absolutely. Well, and, this, and look at Ike Lieberman Barclay's book, The New Shingled House. Absolutely. I mean, every thing in that book to me is very reflective of that 1880s period of inventiveness and plasticity and sculpturalness and the fact that a, a shingled form makes you want to pull it into different shapes. It's like silly putty. Yeah, it's like silly putty. It's very strange. It, it is like silly putty. Right. Well, you could, you, the great thing about the shingle style is you can take that sort of cedar envelope and wrap it around, sort of shrink wrap any mm-hmm. form with it. Absolutely. And, um, and the thing, too, uh, going back to that sort of 1940s low spot, mm-hmm. you've got Scully who starts getting into it. Henry Russell Hitchcock has written about some of Richardson's things, certainly. And then in the 40s, Columbia realizes that there was this guy in Maine named John Calvin Stevens who died. Mm-hmm. And they wrote to his son and said, you know, we hear your father died. Could we have some of his drawings? And in the early 40s... Probably Talbot Hamlin. Abs- it was Talbot Hamlin. And they, and they got 125 of his early drawings. 
And you have to imagine that they got down there and they must have looked them all over and thought, wow, what is this? And it's this remarkable collection for students to learn from mm -hmm. still today. Yeah, but they never look at them. Uh, Hamlin, <laughs> uh, Hamlin was a, a, a very interesting uh, person himself, and his father was before him an architect historian, and Hamlin knew American architecture quite well. So he, he, how he glommed onto Calvin Stevens, that's a very interesting story. There must be some correspondence. There is a little bit of correspondence, and it basically says, we hear your father has died, and he turns out to have been pretty important in the 1880s, and we'd mm -hmm. like to have some of his work for our collection. And John Howard Stevens sent down 125 drawings. Big stuff, too. So how do we get people to stop painting shingle-style houses white? Well, I don't think that's so common. <laughs> Um, uh, certainly on the south shore of Long Island and Southampton and East Hampton, Bridgehampton, most of the shingled houses are left in the natural state uh, of virtually all of them. By the way, the name Nantucket. of Grover Atterbury has not come up. Sure. Oh, Atterbury is a good idea. Shingled houses mm -hmm. uh, in, in his early career uh, on Long Island um, uh, in, um, in the hills above Southampton. There are the, these houses, the Swain House and others, and, and he did Christian her, uh, Albert Herder's house, which is now right. Ron Perlman, the, the, the tycoon, and was once painted black, by the way, uh, by um, Alfonso Osorio. But that's not a shingled house. It's stucco, but its spirit is very shingle style. So that the style of the shingle style, the loose fit sequences of rooms, the orientation of uh, the mass, um, often carried forward in, into other things. Maybe we could call them arts and crafts. Well, and what's interesting, too, about Atterbury is he does a church up on Mount Desert, and it's published by Gustav Stickley. Mm. And they talk about this shingle-style church, and Stickley gives this very romantic description saying how it's sort of like the wings of a bird lifting off this lightness and the rocks being like the mountain. Atterbury did some great stuff all no, over. We, what we haven't talked oh, yeah. about is the color of these houses. We're talking about painting in white, but a lot of these houses... I just read your article last night, Willie. We're, we're stained incredible colors. Well, and Greens, and then there's absolutely. that sunset. What's it called? Sunset, sunset Lodge, I think. Sunset Lodge in Short Hills, which right. was sort of maroon to orange to gold as it moved up the walls. Like a sunset. It, like a sunset, exactly. Right. Imagine if you did a, house, it's, did a house today and said, I want to stain it like a sunset. Your clients would think that you'd gone off the deep end. But I think there was this, people, you know, there's still a draw in America to the center hall colonial, and people get these great old dark mm -hmm. houses, and they want to, you know, maybe because they sell more easily, I don't know, the realtors, right. but they end up, they do stain well, a lot of them white, unfortunately. All across the North Shore and the South Shore of Massachusetts, the coast of Maine, you know, houses that were for decades naturally, shing natural shingles, deep and dark or stained, boy, the, the white paint and the gray paint and the dip right. shingles that never get dark, it's... It's quite a change. And so now you get this house that was once green or brown or dark. It now stands out being light or white or this artificial gray. There was a wonderful, um, uh, what was it I was reading? Some, somebody described it as, um, I think it was in, in your article, uh, talking about an impertinence yes, of a yeah. house. And it's, that's when, they're, when you're white in the middle of all that green. It's just so jarring. And what's interesting, too, is if you look at the period press, you find references to uh, houses that are unduly conspicuous right. or an impertinence. And an impertinence, that's a fairly strong word. Yeah. And in some cases, they rarely say which house is the impertinence. But you can pretty quickly figure it out <laughs> when you look at what house is new around that time. Oh, that's the impertinent house. 
You're on your sailboat in the bay. Yeah, exactly. That's the one. That's the uh, one. But there's interesting references, too, certainly along the coast. Um, there's a reference to a man sailing into Mount Desert Island, and he describes something to the effect of palaces in the forest and all you see are the chimneys. And it's not because they were hidden. It's because they were dark color. You know, the houses are there, right. but they're green, and we know now they're green and brown. Cabot Stain, for a long period of time, was doing all these shingle, like, um, paint chips, but they were wooden pieces of shingle glued into these booklets. And I think that there's one that's, that I've seen that's maybe 12 pieces of shingle glued in, and six of the pieces are various shades of green. I think four pieces, pieces are shades of brown, then maybe a reddish color, and then this grayish color. Mm. So one out of 12 is gray. Six out of 12 are green. What does that tell you about the, the demands of, of the client right. in 1885 or whatever year? Well, you well, brought with you a sliver of a, a shingle. A, a lot of decorative painting on these houses in red, dark red. Right. Someone once described it as tired red, um, which was a, a good way to describe the color. It's not like a fire engine, but it's very uh, a, a very different kind of red. Um, the other thing is that... Uh, uh, I, uh, I think that the houses were much lighter in color when they were new, and they became dark with age. But I think the principle of the shingles was that they would stay silvery. So Depended I, on the area, uh, actually. That's what's interesting. It's a geographic yeah, choice. See, I think, and, and whoever might be carrying this research forward needs to look at that more carefully. Uh, but uh, Mumford, in his book, his early book on the late 19th century called it the Brown Decades. Mm -hmm. And of course he was connecting Richardson with Wright and, 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 and shingle style architecture in between. And people liked American Georgian in the early days as they still like it because it's light in color. Uh, and for that we owe it quite a bit to uh, Edith Wharton um, and her taste and um, Ogden Cogman. Right. Uh, so, you know, there's always, a, at any given moment, different styles. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, and some are more dominant and others are not. But you have to be careful not to uh, accrue to one style or another a, a superiority. I've gotten over that myself. I think that I think that that's a, I think that what you're saying, Bob, is totally true. With the idea that what was what is good for one house isn't always good for another, and certainly there were architects who did not stain their shingles. There's certainly McKinney and White houses that were unstained, but the more I dig into this, there are references to their houses being stained, and you can see it in the photographs. When you start right. to look for it, you see the stain evidence there, and I think it might have been a choice of where it was, of the client, of their desire, but also the location. If you're going to build a house in the woods, you might want it greener. You're going to right. build a house in the mountains, maybe a little bit of brown or red, and and they named houses Sunset Lodge or that sunset effect, right. Red Top, which I think Bob worked on up in Dublin, New Hampshire, hat, right. is red. My client would bought the house back into his family after it had departed from his family in, uh, in the 1910s, believe it or not. He did a certain amount of research and I didn't challenge him. He was uh, kind of knowledgeable. He's a nice guy, an, a an amateur architect. But by the way, he came to me because he had read the shingle style book and then went to Vincent Scully and asked Vince who might design um, uh, help him with restoring this house, which had been very much American Georgianized over time for, I think, the Brewster family of the carriage works. And so there are lots of, if you go inside the house, there, there is beautiful uh, classicizing detail, which was nothing to, had nothing to do with the original house. So um, the, the life of these houses is quite interesting. 
And uh, what about Box Hill? I've never been to Box Hill, as McKim's house, White's house. Is that uh, um, stained? No, or- no, that house is uh, Pebble Dash. I, I think oh. when it when he, you know it was a renovation, he added on, added on, added on. But the original house, I think, was wood. Was a, um, it a farmhouse or something? It was a farmhouse, and I think it was clabbered. Mm-hmm. But now it's all Pebble Dash. And if you look at the photographs when White was alive, it was Pebble Dash. Mm-hmm. When he did those three gables, he took well, one house and sort of multiplied well, Pebble it. Pebble Dash and, and stucco became very popular. Uh, well, Pebble Dash is a decorative material, mostly under McKim and White's leadership. But stucco was adopted, say, in East Hampton. Uh, because it was seen in part as fire resistant, because okay. people were very concerned about the loss of houses to fire. There's a big Atterbury house that got burned down. Uh, the other thing is that it was also to connect it to make it look more English, like Voisey and mm-hmm. Bailey Scott at that time, the arts and crafts. And, uh, and also people got tired of the shingle stuff. You have to... There's a How is that possible? There's a fatigue right now in East Hampton, um, uh, where I have a, a weekend house. I mean, people are building not only hideous modernist houses, but also sort of vague farmhouses, which my son says is the new cliche, and they are oh, bumptious beyond all belief, and they're on small lots and so forth. And I'm getting into a ramble here, but um, uh, people just, they, they say, oh, people, nobody wants, the, the, the new millennia don't want these old shingle-style houses meaning ones that were built in 1990. Cycles go around. So you either go with the styles, or you do all the styles, or you hang up your key square, or turn off your computer and uh, retire to a, a farm somewhere. Bob mentions the Pebble Dash as being English, and you know stucco is an English thing that comes over here. But the American architects too are playing with this Pebble Dash full of seashells or sea glass. Is, right. uh, mm-hmm. the t- uh, what's the house? The, the Tilton House. The Tilton House with that incredible, those blue and orange glass balls right. and everything. They're it's beautiful. Really, yeah. Um, and it's so, very hard to do that. We have tried to do that working with my partner Roger Seifter. We've we've done some Pebble Dash uh, panels and so forth, but it's hard to do it as well as. Stanford White. Well, you know, when I if you talk to the current owners of the Tilton House, every year they pick up all the pieces of glass mm-hmm. that pop off, and then they go up and they glue it back up the, the following <laughs> spring. And it's a constant sort of harvesting of shards and, and re because they just fall apart. Oh, absolutely. Well, and pe- glass yeah. does not stick to mortar particularly well. Well, and seashells that get broken over the hundred years, but every once in a while you find one that still is there. It's just amazing. Yeah, amazing. The other thing is you have to realize that a lot of these great shingle style houses, particularly around the 1880s, were not characteristically shingle-style on the inside. For example, the Golette House, facing uh, and down the, the cliff walk from the Breakers, inside is Elizabethan, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, grand beyond all measure. So um, uh, on the outside, one of the, it's sometimes called South Side, but uh, we've been told that it's not a family the family doesn't approve it. The Goettes still own it, but inside it's a huge league. It's a Georgia. It's an English Tudor or Tudor Beethoven interior. So, and and then there's the shingle style houses like the Lorillard House, which burned and gave way uh, to uh, another house right on Cliff Walk, also, and had a lot of stone. Um, so a lot of these shingle style, so-called shingle style houses had natural stone often quarried on the site. Bob, you know, you mentioned Lorillard, and someone we had not talked about is is Bruce Price. People listening might want to look at his work, because it is, especially his work in 
in the, the 1880s. Tuxedo 80s. Park, it's, on those places. It's tuxedo Park, just fantastic oh, and abstract and modern. And, and you know, Price writes early almost Wrightian. He writes right, early right, in his career. To tuxedo, one of uh, Price's tuxedo house for his own first house for his own family. Um, Scully made that point, and nobody's ever challenged because it it's so obvious. Yeah. Well, there's and so many of these architects we could go on. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, Fred Savage and Peabody and Stearns, and I mean, it's just endless. How many people? Emerson. How many people? You know, did the shingle style? So I'm, it it looks like might be easier to do a list of who didn't do it. For that a might time. be the <laughs> easiest way to do <laughs> it. That'd be a good book. There's a little book that I did with Vince of um, when I went through all the American architect for drawings of shingle style architecture from 1876 to 19. 19- 18, I think it's called Architecture of American Summer. Great book. Yes. Yes. Well, and it's also it, a beautiful, it's, it's yes, also a beautiful description of what the shingle style is. That's a great book. We have, I think, three copies in the office. And they're all dogged and worn. They're all torn out and marked. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we have the same problem. <laughs> One thing is interesting is that uh, Bertrand Goodyear, who never went to architecture school, uh, used was a dream, uh, an amazing draftsman, and he used to draw drawings for the American architect. And I think some of them are in that book. He always signed his drawings. And then there was this Englishman um, whose name escapes me at the moment who made these drawings and also signed them. Is it E. Uh, Eldon Dean? E. Eldon Dean. The role role of those people in uh, articulating the vision of the shingle style. You know, Richardson, by the way, hardly ever drew anything. Mm -hmm. He he would make these one-line sketches, and, and he'd say to us, Peabody or Stearns or whoever was in the office, draw it up, let's see what it'll look like. Uh, It was the French method, where the master really didn't draw. Um, The master went around and criticized things. He was like a critic in an atelier. Um, And so Richardson, um, we we assume Richardson's responsible for a lot of stuff that he influenced through his disciples in his own studio. That's my interpretation. It's a heresy to Richardson's freaks, but um, there you go. Well, I'd like to thank you all very much for talking about the shingle style, which is a thicket of, uh, of subject. But thank you very much for helping clarify it, and I hope taking it into the future. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Mitch. Thank you. The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragon and Emma Wartsman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at ArcDigest.com. Architectural Digest's members-only community for design industry professionals. AD Pro offers industry news, must-read profiles, grow-your-business features, jobs boards, and trend reports. Plus, there's exclusive access to AD's archives, more than 100 years of issues packed with iconic photography and sensational articles about art, architecture, and inspiring interiors. Our listeners will receive 25% off an annual membership with the promotional code PODCAST25. Go to arcdigestpro.com to learn more.